certainly there are a number of, of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are eighth generation fishers, six, seven generation fishers. I mean, for the most part, that's why our families came here, to fish for cod. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, author Jennifer Thornhill-Verma. It was the kind of blunt question that's bound to rattle anyone doing research for a book. What qualifies you as a writer? It was even more pointed because it was posed by the man who wrote the unofficial anthem of the ecological and social catastrophe in Newfoundland and Labrador that stopped five centuries of cod fishing dead in a single day. A song called She's Gone Buys, She's Gone. But when Jennifer Thornhill Verma gathered herself, she answered him with a few sentences that confirmed her credentials. If anything, she was modest about what qualified her to write the book entitled Cod Collapse, The Rise and Fall of Newfoundland's Saltwater Cowboys. Jennifer, welcome to Book Me. Thanks for having me. The man's name is Wayne Bartlett. What did you tell him? I So many things cycled through my head in that moment because I wanted to make sure that I would have the opportunity to speak to this man. Because as you say, his song was the anthem of, of the cod moratorium, and actually he wrote it before the moratorium took effect. He had seen a boat coming inshore uh, in the harbor at Carpoon, and usually you'd have cod you know, up to the gunnels. And in this case, the fishermen, inshore fishermen, were coming back with no cod at all. And so that song, it predicted and then became an anthem and it explained for so many people that which was inexplicable. In that moment, I said a number of things, but I brought it back to, I think we have a shared story here. I told him about my grandfather, who was the last fisher in our family, and how I had felt the loss of, of generations before me, that Myself, like many others, our families had either left the fishery or left out Port Newfoundland. And so here I was on a journey to figure that out and, and share it with everyone else. And he was mollified by that. He was actually. He offered me a, a nice dose of jam bread. Uh, and so that was a peace offering, I think, that said I had convinced him that I was doing this for, for the right reasons. How many generations of your family had fished off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador? It dates back to, uh, as as far as I could figure out, my family first came over in the 18th century. Uh, so certainly my great, great, great grandparents would have been involved in the fishery. Before that, I don't know. Uh, but certainly there are a number of, of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are eighth generation fishers, six, seven generation fishers. I mean, for the most part, that's why our families came here, to fish for cod. Now, each generation, I guess, is marked by a, a certain date. Uh, the day Kennedy was assassinated for one generation, uh, the 9-11 attacks. But for Newfoundlanders of a certain age, it's the closure of the cod fishery on Canada Day in 1992. Uh, it instantly put about 40,000 men and women out of work. You were only 12 on that day, but you've interviewed many people who were adults then. What, what perspective were they able to give you? 
I think it was it was best put when I spoke to Jean Maloney, Eugene Maloney, who's uh, now 87 years old. At the time, was 86 when I when I interviewed him, and he talked about your livelihood being yanked out from underneath you. And although there were some 580,000 people living in Newfoundland and Labrador at the time, and and you know you look at that 30, 40,000 number. That, that were the people who were directly involved in the fishery. And the fishery was very much an economic hub for many communities in rural and outport Newfoundland. And so you take those hubs away, you take away that which keeps these rural communities in existence. People had also already for years, and particularly um, since the 40s, 50s, been accustomed to resettlement. So there had already been a migration of people leaving rural Newfoundland, leaving outport Newfoundland for more urban centers, or leaving Newfoundland Labrador altogether. And so when the moratorium happened, it really felt like a nail in a coffin. So I think for many people, it it was a time that it felt like a pylon uh, in many ways. You know, the decision had been made from what everyone at the time understood, which is why there were so many protests leading up to the moratorium itself, the announcement. Um, but the decision had been made in Ottawa. It probably could have been announced sooner. Ottawa wanted to put together packages to make some accommodation for those who would be put out of work. But to have not taken the opportunity to sit down with Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who would be affected by this and involve them in a more meaningful way, I, I think also hurt. The fact that you know the, the announcement came behind a, a desk people in blue suits, fishermen on the other side of the newsroom conference door, that added to the effect. You know, here was news that was about the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, which felt without them. Could you read uh, an excerpt of your book about one of those people you spoke with? Meet Eugene G. Maloney, an 86-year-old retired fisher, boat builder, and father of five living in Bay Bowls on the Avalon Peninsula about a 25-minute drive from St. John's in eastern Newfoundland and Labrador. Gene's a stocky man, as sturdy as the wooden boats he builds. He builds them in his woodsheds. Like many Newfoundlanders, especially the self-respecting outport kind, Gene has multiple sheds, three in fact, but based on the materials stacked outside, he could do with another. Anyone who go to sea for fun would go to hell for pastime. That's the warning Gene has scrawled in black marker on a piece of scrap wood nailed to the wall of one of his sheds. Over on the far side of the same shed, on the wall adjacent to the warning, behind the wood stove, Jean has written what looks to be hundreds of dates, weather and otherwise noteworthy special events. Some of the entries read, Storm, Big Sea, December 21st, Rain, Wind, 100 kilometers. Xmas Day, 2010, Rain, 10 centimeters. First Boat in 2012, January 29th. First Snow, October 23rd. And December 30th, 2010, Fine Day. There's a collection of news clippings, too, some assembled as collages or glued to a piece of board. One features stages and fishing boats of fishers in the area before wind lifted the structures into the harbor and ice crushed the rest in a particularly bad storm on February 3, 1987. Another has an excerpt from Michael Harris's 1998 Lament for an Ocean, featuring a photo of Gene unloading his catch of cod. Other clippings show lobster pots, the frame of a boat, and an ice crew preparing a strap of sealskins. Being in that space, as much as the Sheds or Jean's workspaces, it's also where his memorabilia live now. Reminders of the way things were. 
I asked Gene where he was that day when Fisheries Minister John Crosby walked along the wharf in Bay Bulls. It was the day before Crosby would announce the collapse of the cod stocks and the closure of its fishery. Although more than 25 years ago, that July 1st, 1990 day always feels more proximal here because it happened down over the road, no more than a couple of minutes drive from Gene's shed and his old fishing stage, too. Gene's response is immediate. He mutters a curse word, the only one I'd hear him say, in reference to Crosby. He tells me he'd been out that Wednesday morning setting cod traps. It was Canada Day, so while most Canadians were enjoying summer barbecues and other festivities with family and friends, here in Bay Bulls, throngs of disgruntled fishers, plant workers and community members, men, women, children, gathered down on the wharf. Meanwhile, Gene and his three-man crew returned home about 11 a.m. for lunch, or what people here called dinner. When Gene walked in his front door, his wife looked at him, puzzlingly. "'Where are you at?' she asked. "'We're going back out to heave out a trap,' Gene replied. "'Don't you know the fishery's closed?' she asked. Oh, "'I didn't know,' Gene says, looking at me now. As he says those three words, his voice raises an octave, as though the surprise is hitting him anew.' It would take Gene and his crew the better part of the next four days to haul all of their cod fishing gear ashore. And then, just like that, he tells me, that was the end of it. But it certainly wasn't the end of the cod, he says. There was lots of fish, but the moratorium was all politics, Gene says. I spent 50 years going in and out of this harbor. I got out of bed every morning between half past three and quarter to four. Rain, fog, no odds, I had to go, that was my living. And when they closed it down, it's hard to describe, you know. Gene doesn't go on explaining. Instead, he pauses holds his breath, and presses his eyelids for a slow blink, as if to let his heart break another time. Imagine having your livelihood yanked out from under you, all your pride, all your life, everything you've ever known. You can't recall spending days and weeks, certainly not this time of year, on land. But there you are, with all your gear ready, but no place to go and no use for it. Leave it to Jean, a true Newfoundlander, to make light of even the grimmest situations. I never knew we had a lawn until 1993, he says, raising his eyebrows to see if his punchline has landed. That was the first summer everyone stayed home, so everything on land got a lot more attention. The houses and properties looked immaculate, with all the lawns mowed and fences painted. The excitement of the fishery was gone, and boredom was setting in better than any grass fertilizer. I've spent the last couple of days driving up and down the north and south shore of Bay Bowls, as well as down the Avalon Peninsula, driving in and out of similar fishing communities, trying to picture the fishing scenes Jean had described. In the days before the cod fishery collapse, people gathered at their fishing spots and community wharfs. Local fish plants buzzed with activity and fishing vessels, seagulls and children circled the harbors. On this road now, from here up to the other end of the road, down there to the church, if there are a half dozen kids now, that's it, Jean says. But there's a house down there now, used to be a busload of kids come out of it, 14 or 15 or something. I can't tell if he's exaggerating the way Newfoundlanders tend to do, but I don't doubt him. The demographic has changed here, and it's still changing. The population is aging, and out-migration is happening faster than most parts of Canada and shows no sign of slowing. The demise of the fishery is certainly a contributing factor, having exacerbated the exodus that started long before. It's not that people don't want to stay. It's that many can't, mainly due to a lack of steady employment. It's also part of the rhetoric we all hear as Newfoundlanders, that to make something of yourself means moving away. While I'd like to say that's changing, sociologist Nicole Power's work shows that sentiment is still alive. 
According to Power's work, one of the markers of success for a young person from rural Newfoundland Labrador is moving away. She also found from speaking to young people in rural areas of the province that many want to stay or return home, especially once they settle down, because they want the lifestyle they had growing up for their own children. Meanwhile, up and down this peninsula, I see tangible evidence of a lasting fishery. There are vessels, dories, fish plants, and wharfs, but those structures pale in comparison to what might have been had approaches to rework the wild fisheries model followed what's happened elsewhere. Now, you suggest that to many people on the mainland in Canada, the the tragedy of the cod collapse seemed to play into a stereotype of Newfoundlanders in, in a very perverse way. How so? Well, I think at that time, and I was 12, as we talked about earlier, I repeatedly saw, as did most Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and certainly Canadians at the time, fishers, plant workers out of their element, not down at the processing plant or in their intro fishery boat, but in front of a television news camera in your living room, in your kitchen. And they were absolutely out of their element, trying to describe in you know dialects and language that could be difficult for many to appreciate, certainly within Newfoundland Labrador, let alone uh, across the country. And I, I think it contributed to this sentiment that that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are so-called newfies, which to many is a, is still a dirty word in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, there was this sentiment that, you know, why do these fishermen deserve to get a payout? Um, bad luck happens to people all the time. But I think what people too quickly forgot is that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians were brought here. I mean, people were brought here to fish. Um, mostly to the benefit of others, to, to merchants, to you know European merchants in, in particular. And so there was always, I think, uh, a case where Newfoundlanders and Labradorians were getting the raw end of the deal. Um, when Confederation happened, Newfoundland was near bankruptcy. Uh, it, you know, half the province was not in favor of, of joining Canada, wanted to make it on their own. Uh, and, I, and I don't know uh, that they ever had a chance to do so. Um, simply because of the way that the island, the province, was colonized. Um, but and then fast- Ottawa took over responsibility for the fishery five years after Newfoundland and Labrador joined mainland Canada. That's it. In the terms of the union, the part of the terms is that the federal government takes responsibility for protection and encouragement of the fisheries. I have a hard time um, making sense of that now, 25, 27 years since the cod moratorium, and we don't have a management plan. I mean, Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada would argue they do have a management plan. There's a small stewardship fishery. Um, they operate a, a sort of a limited total allowable catch, but there's no recovery plan. How for a species that was nearly fished to extinction do you not have a recovery plan? So, you know, I, I, I think just going back to your to your original question, though, I, I think that at a time when here I was forming my identity, the province very much felt like it was losing its identity. And that's what the rest of Canada had sort of a front row seat to seeing uh, on their television news screens. But, but less than a decade later, you were at university on the mainland in Halifax. And uh, it's interesting, the book, you document what you saw as an interesting evolution and turnaround in the attitudes, not just of people on the mainland, but of Newfoundlanders. 
Tell us about that. Give us some examples. Yeah. So I want to reference Nicole Power, who's at the Memorial University of Newfoundland, a sociologist, because her work, and she has interviewed hundreds of young people from rural Outport, Newfoundland, Labrador, who report that a measure of success for them is moving away. And, you know, invariably, when I talk to fishers, just as an example, as much as they very often love their job in the inshore fishery, I ask them, would you want this for your children? And they say, no, they, they want better for their children, which often means leaving the province. And so there is this stereotype and mentality even within the province that to be successful means getting away from that dependency, I think, on the fishery and, and living in rural and outport Newfoundland and moving to more urban centers like St. John's or elsewhere altogether. But what about the 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 pushback from from some prominent Newfoundlanders, both from politics uh, and the entertainment world, even? Yes, good point. What I experienced in those years leaving for university was a real turnaround. Um, you know, we had a, a premier who was a Rhodes Scholar, Danny Williams, who was very boisterous and and uh, you know stood up for the province in a way that. I think people weren't accustomed to seeing uh, and say what you he, he will. He went toe-to-toe on Larry King with Paul McCartney and his then-wife. He did, and I think that gave him a lot of street cred in Newfoundland and Labrador and probably the rest of Canada as well, um, that, that he was willing to you know go toe-to-toe, but also bring the facts. There was a lot of misinformation. And that was over seal the seal funding. hunt. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so you know he stayed calm and had a, a, a calm disposition and demeanor and was able to articulate Newfoundland Labrador's case and, and clarify some misinformation information and later receiving uh, an apology, if I understand correctly, from Paul McCartney's then wife. But the, the other thing I think that had happened around that time period were people who were leaving Newfoundland Labrador and were coming back. And sometimes I think you almost need that, that moment of, of clarity or that opportunity to realize what you had once it's gone. I think about the experience of Zita Cobb, who, along with her brothers, created Fogo Island Inn, uh, the Shore Fast Foundation in Fogo Island. I like that scenario or that case example because Fogo Island in and of itself is an interesting case where it resisted resettlement. It was tagged for resettlement. Um, the community got together, thought about what they could do to make this island community um, economically viable and flourish. And the only way that the Cobbs were able to come in and build Fogo Island Inn, the Shorefast Foundation, and other entities was because they were building it on a community that was self-sustaining. And they were contributing to that which already existed versus coming in in some kind of savior mentality. So I think, but to be able to see then what kind of attention that brought the province. I mean, similarly, when 9-11 happened and people in central Newfoundland opened their homes and schools and transportation, I mean, really the whole community came together to support people, the plain people, as they were called, who were uh, had the land in in central Newfoundland um, that showed I think the spirit and friendliness of of Newfoundland Labrador and so you know we were moving away from that stereotype of lazy good for nothings to actually you know quite good natured friendly people that are willing to go out of their way to help their neighbor and they were still hurting uh, economically and culturally. 
from the closure of the cod fishery at that time. Well, Newfoundland and Labrador has always been a place of conundrums. I mean, if, if you ask people about their health, they self-report high health status. But Newfoundland and Labrador, like most of Atlantic Canada, wins the prize for high rates of chronic disease. <laughs> but there's something to be said, I guess, for for living on an island. Um, there's been some research into that as well, that, that particularly the island portion of the province, where maybe it's because you do have that remoteness that it bonds you together in a way that maybe doesn't happen elsewhere. Now, I guess the, the irony is that fish are supposed to be a renewable resource, but with enough technology and economic pressure, uh, the industry can nearly eradicate a species. Uh, the moratorium has been a, in effect for a whole generation, long after people thought it would have ended. But you found people like the Cobbs who are proving there is a path to uh, to a new, very different approach to fishing, which which could sustain not just the industry, but communities and the fishing heritage of Newfoundland and Labrador and perhaps most important of all, the fish. Where, where are some of those bright spots, very briefly? Yeah, I, I think some of the bright spots are entities like Fogo Island Fish, which have moved away from a mentality of fish sticks to fillets. They focus on uh, value over volume. They're using sustainable methods, so hand lining, cod pots, cod traps, for example, instead of what is still the primary modality of, of cod fishing in Newfoundland and Labrador is gill netting, um, but they're focusing more on the value over the volume, rather. And they're getting a lot more than they would from fish brokers. Absolutely. I mean, now, otherwise, uh, with a grading scheme that exists, a lot of fishers get paid less now for cod than they did at the time before the moratorium. Uh, in schemes like what's happening with Fogo Island Fish, fishers are getting paid a premium because they're selling the fillets at a premium. So it's this water-to-table movement where a fish is hand-lined, it's flash-frozen, sent to a shishi restaurant in Ottawa and Toronto, uh, and people pay a premium for it. And, and clearly they are. I do think there's still room, though, for Newfoundland Labradorians to participate in the food fishery. And I, I think it's important that we maintain a relationship with fish. You know, there are lots of arguments out there that say we shouldn't be fishing at all. But I think that sustainable ecological approaches can happen. And it's important that we pass that on to younger generations. I, I just took my two-year-old uh, fishing. I'll put in air quotes. I took her fishing. <laughs> but we used baited um, jig. And so you know, many people will use a jigger without bait at all. And you can catch a cod that way. If you use bait, then you know that the cod are hungry. And so in many ways, by using a baited hook and line, for example, catching one cod at a time, you're um, you know, not taking trawls amount of, of fish out of the water. You're not netting them out of the water. You're allowing the fish to decide if it's going to bite or not. And if it's not, you know, another day. Come back another day. Just finally, uh, personally, what did the writing of this book do for you? And I guess your search for your identity. Yeah, I felt that the time was opportune to do this because my grandfather being the last fisher in my family, my father, who only recently passed away, I had an uncle who had passed away, which then marked I had more people related to me, you know, six feet under in Little Bay East than were living in, in Little Bay East. And so mostly what it gave me was an opportunity to sit down with my family and to to write about our history, but also the shared history of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians whose families 
left the fishery, left Outport, Newfoundland, but for whom the fishery is still an intrinsic part of all of our lives. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us on Book Me. Thank you for having me. Jennifer Thornhill Verma is the author of Cod Collapse, The Rise and Fall of Newfoundland's Saltwater Cowboys. It's published by Nimbus. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca or just type bookme with an exclamation mark into your search engine. If you'd like to rate and or review our podcast, you can do that on iTunes. BookMe is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox navigates the technical seas for us. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.